now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. Hello, welcome to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. My name is Patricia Ramflett, and here is... Well, my name is Lex Marinos. <laughs> G'day, Lex. Patricia. We have a great guest today, Professor Ian Fraser, who is a clinician scientist, trained as a clinical immunologist in Scotland. As a professor at the University of Queensland, he leads a research group working at TRI in Brisbane, Australia, on the immunobiology of epithelial cancers. He is recognised as co-inventor of the technology enabling the HPV vaccines, currently used worldwide to prevent cervical cancer. We women are thrilled. Thank you. He heads a biotechnology company, Jinjiang Medicine, working on new vaccine technologies, and he's a board member of several companies and not-for-profit organisations. He was the inaugural president of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences and a member of the Australian National Science and Technology Council. He chairs the Australian Medical Research Advisory Board of the Medical Research Future Fund. He was recognised as Australian of the Year in 2006, recipient of the Prime Minister's Prize for Science and of the Bolson Prize in 2008, and was elected Fellow of the Royal Society of London in 2012. He was appointed Companion of the Order of Australia in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in 2013. We welcome you, Professor Ian Fraser. Well, thank you for having me along, Patricia. Glad to be with you. Well, let's get to it. Where did I think I might know just by that wonderful accent? But tell us, where did you grow up? Look, I was obviously from Scotland. I was born in Glasgow, but I only managed to stay there for about six weeks before I was moved to Edinburgh. And I uh, grew up in Edinburgh and Aberdeen. What time was this when you were growing up? What was the, what was going on at that time? Uh, Scotland was thinking about trying to be independent. <laughs> it had been thinking about that for about 300 years by that time. <laughs> I haven't quite got there then and still hasn't got there now. But uh, when I was growing up, so the whole business of it, Scotland's oil was uh, one of the major slogans that was being passed around. But- I work in music and I keep running into absolutely talented music teachers who've uh, had careers in Scotland and brought brought their expertise to Australia. Can you remember growing up and having great musicians? I can remember them, but can you? I probably don't remember them as well as I should do these days. I mean, the, uh, Scotland was not a cultural centre, really, in the strict sense of the word. I mean, we, we were brought up in diets of Andy Stewart singing uh, oh. Scottish, <laughs> Scottish Highland songs of one sort or another. He was on the television every Saturday night. Uh, Donald wears the trousers. That sort of thing, yeah. A bit, a bit, of, a, a bit of everything, but uh, mostly at the comic end of the spectrum. What about movies? You must have gone to the pictures. Yeah, look, I, the very first picture I remember going to see was Lawrence of Arabia. Which was one of the, I mean, in those days going to pictures was a big treat and it was actually a treat for a mm. birthday party for me mm. for about my seventh or eighth birthday. Wow. I just remember being rather impressed by the scenery and the music. It was, a, can't remember the plot very much. I know I can retrospectively put it together because obviously he was pretty famous as, as Lawrence of Arabia, but it was more of the settings that were impressive for me. What brought you to Australia? 
Well, the standard answer is Qantas, of course, but uh, <laughs> I actually came out here, first of all, as a student. Uh, I was uh, a medical student in Edinburgh, and you had to spend three months somewhere other than Edinburgh during your training. And uh, that time, the Australian government had a great scheme whereby you could fly out to Australia for free as an undergraduate because they were wanting to lure engineering students. And so, funnily enough, out of the hundred or so of us that came out, there were about 98 engineering students and then token medics somewhere thrown in for good measure. So I came out to Melbourne for three months and worked in Melbourne in a research laboratory there. Actually, didn't. What I really did was I got a Greyhound bus pass and went all around Australia in the buses and met up with people uh, around the country. You've probably met and seen more of Australia than we, than most people have, but obviously you loved it enough to stay. What kept you here? Well, look, I, <laughs> again, the answer is a job, but I, I went back to Scotland to finish my medical training and indeed uh, I then worked for a few years in Scotland. But when I'd been out in Australia, the guy that I was working with, I uh, Professor Ian Mackay, who's recently passed away, uh, he uh, uh, said, you know, we'd like you to come back maybe sometime. And I really forgot about that entirely. And uh, uh, we went off. My, by that time, I was working and married. And uh, we went off on a skiing holiday, my wife and I. And when we came back, there was a telegram under the door of our apartment saying, where are you? And the idea was that he thought we'd have come back by then. Uh, and we sort of had to think very quickly about that. And we tore up our plans for what we were going to do in Scotland and headed out to Australia and came out in 1981 to Melbourne. What greeted you in Australia in those in those times that you remember? Was it was it difficult to adjust to so-called Australian culture? Oh, look, it was. I had the three-month training period in 1974 uh, when I came out, and I had been part of the student culture then. There was, the students were actually, in comparison with Scotland, they were relatively docile. I mean, in Scotland, we were fairly aggressive as students and uh, had opinions on things, but the students then were just having a good time. I mean, they were enjoying the student life. And when we came out here, well, the first thing I had to learn was what a shout was when you went to the pub. Uh, it's your shout. Well, I don't know. I do I just shout? <laughs> what do I do? Uh, I learned pretty quickly this was a, a very strong hint that it was my turn to buy the drinks. Your particular love of what you do, your clinician science, it, when did you choose to do that? Whilst you were a student or after you graduated? Yeah, look, I did a little bit of that. Paddy, when I was out here as an undergraduate, and I wanted to find out whether research was going to be something I was interested in. But I worked as a doctor, for, as I say, in Scotland for five years without doing any research at all, and then realised that it was probably going to be more interesting if I did research as well as the clinical work. And that was why I came back to Australia, because the opportunity was there to do some research work in what was, at that time, the best research institute worldwide for immunology, a place called the Walton Liza Hall Institute in Melbourne. Mm. And uh, all the papers that I read as a, as, a, as, a, as a student had come from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute, famous famous names like Ian Mackay, certainly, but Graham Mitchell and uh, Gus Nossel were authors on these papers, and I just wanted to see what was different about the place. turned out they were very much the same scientists as we met elsewhere, just that they were doing really good science, and uh, I was very happy to become part of that team. The last couple of years in particular have been a very busy time for immunologists. What how extensive is that field? Is is there a finite knowledge? Are we getting on top of it? Is there much we much more we need to know and find out? Well, look, it's interesting that the two 
bits of the body that we really don't understand yet are the brain and the immune system, the immunology, if you like. I mean, we know how a kidney works. We know how your heart works. We know how muscles work. But we're still learning how your immune system works. And that's why it's so interesting, because it's actually quite complex. It's almost as complex as a brain. And uh, therefore, it's, and it's it's a little easier to do experiments on. People don't like you experimenting on their brain, but they're reasonably comfortable with the idea of you taking some blood and doing some tests about their immune system. And where are we in that in that knowledge? Do we uh, are we finding out new things every day? Is there an end in sight? Well, we've gone a long way in the time that I've been studying immunology. When I started on immunology, the cells of the immune system were small round cells that went in the blood, and we didn't know how to tell them apart one from another or what they did. Uh, the, the last organ of the body to be uh, to have a purpose given to it was the thymus, which is one part of your immune system. And then Jack Miller in Melbourne was the person who defined the function of that bit, bit of your body. So that was where it all started. Well, there was a bit done before that with uh, vaccines, but the reality is this, the understanding we now have started about the time I came out to Australia, and we're still learning. I mean, we still don't know enough. And is, is it an ongoing battle? Do the, do the viruses get smarter as we get smarter? Well, they're selected for smartness. I mean, <laughs> the harder we push against them, the harder they learn to change. And uh, that's one of the challenges, of course, we face with COVID is it's not one virus it's uh, it's a generation of viruses and every time we push with a vaccine in one direction the virus moves in another direction to try and evade it and we've had that problem with flu viruses and vaccines for a long time mm -hmm. some viruses are easier to deal with the one that i was involved with the papilloma virus hadn't really changed in 10,000 years it was a very stable virus and therefore it was relatively easy to work on that one but the viruses we're working with that cause problems nowadays they're viruses that can change easily and they will do that if we push them hard enough. Is it easy to say there is an end in sight to COVID or it's or it's that tricky that we just don't know? It's hard to take. There will be an end to it uh, at some level. But, uh, I mean, the coronaviruses, that, that they cause a lot of different illnesses. One of the coronaviruses causes the common, some part of the common cold, and it's been evolving over the last 10,000 years, and now we regard it as totally trivial. Now, they say in due course, and maybe sooner rather than later, we'll regard the coronaviruses that cause COVID as relatively trivial. But right now, they're still evolving. They're probably, they came out of bats two or three years ago, and they're evolving to live in humans. And, of course, from the mm. virus's point of view, the virus doesn't really want to make us particularly sick. It just wants us to go around and cough and peep on people and spread the virus. You're obviously, um, dare I say, a workaholic and probably always have been very, very busy. For fun, what do you do? Well, probably the thing I most enjoy to escape uh, from the work is skiing. I started snow skiing when I was a kid. Uh, didn't last very long. The first day I went out, I fell and twisted my knee and didn't get any further skiing that year. But it obviously didn't put me off because I've been skiing ever since. And I mm. met my wife. Uh, she was on the ski club bus that I was the bus convener for. And uh, we've skied together for the, for the last 40-odd years now. Where do you go? Anywhere there's snow. <laughs> when COVID was on, I did manage to get a little skiing in down in Threadbow, but mostly we 
go across to the States to ski because the snow is best there. In the 40 years that you've been in Australia, what are the major cultural shifts you've observed? Well, I've watched my children growing up and they're part of the cultural shift and now I've got grandchildren and they're part of the cultural shift again. I think we're a bit, I mean, we were an easygoing country when I came here and we liked our freedom and our chance to go outside and do things. I think that's still true. I think we are, that's one of the reasons we stayed in Australia. It's a, you don't you don't feel uncomfortable when you're here. You, you know, it's not formal in any sense of the word. Uh, mm. We have gr- great performing arts. We've got great uh, cultural life. We've got really good food, and we're in, international. I mean, the one thing that really impressed me when I came to Australia the second time was we, within 200 meters of where we lived in North Carlton, we could find six different ethnic sorts of cuisine in the restaurants and all cheap and all really good and uh, that certainly didn't exist in Scotland where it was all fish and chips and maybe if you were lucky you'd now and then But how good is the fish and chips in Scotland? I think it's the best actually, I better not hear Australians <laughs> Well you shouldn't say that too loudly but the fish is certainly the, good in Scotland. Oh it's very good Do you long for ever increasing money spent on research? Look, obviously, one of my jobs is to advocate for more money for research because research solves problems much better than guesswork. Uh, but uh, we also have to accept that it's not the highest all highest priority right at the moment. Uh, there are many challenges that we face, including global mm. warming and, and uh, the recent floods and uh, mm. climate change is an issue. You know, we have to do research to find out how to make sure that doesn't become a big problem. I like medical research. Obviously, that's the way I'm trained. But I really want to see that when we make decisions about how we do things, we do it as much as possible based on research rather than guesswork. Indeed. And, Professor, outside of work, are you well connected socially? Is that important to you? Uh, my wife would say I'm not well connected socially. I tend to socialise with people who work in the same sort of area as I do. So I, that's why that's why I very much appreciate the, that my wife is able to help out in that area. She has a nice social network, which I'm allowed to join in. But also our kids have a social network, and we're part of that now. And I dare say as our grandchildren grow up, then they'll be part of that network too. Hmm. So maybe I'm, as when I retire, I will become more sociable. Do you acknowledge the importance of it? Oh, very much so, yes. I mean, it's a, look, I mean, society is all about socializing. We have to be part of society. You can live separate from society if you really want to, but society itself only works if we socialize. Medical research is actually a very social activity. People think we're all competing with each other, but we're not. We're actually collaborating all the time. The only time we compete is when we're after grant money, uh, because that's a competition, but, uh, once we've got the grant money, then we just love to collaborate. And uh, we can only, once again, thank you for all of your work and that's kept us healthy and keeping us better and looking forward to uh, more good, healthy years. Um, music, you've got a favourite song to take us out on? Yes, look, I picked something that Nigel Westlake wrote from the Antarctica Suite. He has. There are four very nice bits to that, but I like the wooden ships bit, which is sort of just ethereal music. It's a very it's beautiful, very very beautiful. I want to thank uh, Professor Ian Fraser for being with us today, and thank you importantly for the work you do, mm. which makes us all a better society. Well, thank sure you, Lex, and thanks to Patty for letting me take part. Thank you, Ian. Bye bye.